0: Hey there, citizen scientists. You are currently listening to one of my older episodes on my podcast. The audio is, I might say so myself, pretty horrible. So uh, all my newer episodes are updated with audio quality and uh, way better sound. So go ahead and check out my newer episodes. And I have plans on redoing all my older ones with my newer equipment. So keep an eye out for that. So enjoy the show. I got a special treat for you today. Today marks the very first episode of my biography slash lecture focus on certain people in the Bigfoot community. Um, I am starting off with Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum today, and we'll give you a tiny little background. On him and his schooling, and then we will move forward to listening to a lecture of his on the 50 year anniversary of the Patty footage. This video takes place in 2017, but it is all still relevant. So, have a peek and enjoy the show.
1: Meldrum studies how humans and primates move. He's an expert on tracks. And in 1996, he was shown large footprints made by something. The Blue Mountains of Washington. You could not make that track with a carved wooden foot unless it was carved in the shape. From that day forward, Meldrum was hooked on the evidence. The best of which, he says, are the footprints. He has well over 100 plaster casts and frequently spots fakes and large human feet. 13 and a half inches. And, And there already, you're up into like the one half of 1% of the human population. Meldrum explained a cast is somewhat like a snapshot, a record of the interaction of the foot with the soil. Which is very different uh, regarding a living foot as opposed to a static contrivance, especially a very simplistic carved wooden foot strapped to someone's boot. Another oddity. He says the prints are more primate-like than human. No arch, no ball of the foot, with a flexible insta. These are not simply enlargements of human feet. Real or not, an exhibit here at the Idaho Museum of Natural History has been immensely popular and asked the question, how do we know the big guy really exists? People like to wonder. I think people like wonder in their life. Museum director Linda Deck helped create this collection of Sasquatch artifacts, pictures, and evidence, but says it really explores how we learn through faith, proof, science, and of course, legend. For me, the jury is still out on this. Among that evidence is the Patterson-Gimlin film, taken in Bluff Creek, California in 1967. A film that Dr. Meldrum, along with most of the world, has seen before. While you might look at the face, the hair, or the swinging arms, Meldrum, again, likes the feet. And on this film, these feet were animated, they were dynamic, they were interacting with the soil. Uh, if you look at costumes, if you have any experience with costumes, you'll quickly learn that the feet are a very weak link when it comes to trying to impersonate Bigfoot. Other home movies also exist. One shot by Paul Freeman in 1994. Another called the Memorial Day footage, shot by Lori Pate in 96. Many believe it shows a female possibly carrying its offspring. Something was on its back holding on as she went running down the hill. Meldrum says none of the movies are irrefutable proof of the existence of a new species. But when he analyzes the primate type movement, then sees the footprint cast taken at the scene, he can't help but wonder. I think that these must be very rare animals. Uh, a few thousand scattered across the West United States of Canada. If even that many, I think that they're quite capable with the, those numbers of uh, sustaining the population. In Canada and the Pacific Northwest, there are tens of thousands of square miles that humans rarely, if ever, visit. Meltzer believes Sasquatch as a species makes sense. Perhaps the next chapter for great apes. And he thinks the evidence is far more realistic. An elaborate hoax. Who's passing out the instruction manual on, on what to include to make a credible, convincing looking Bigfoot track? But those questions still linger. How can an animal so large be so elusive? And why haven't we caught one yet? Or at the very least, got some skeletal remains or gotten some DNA off one of the many hair samples found out there? That hasn't happened yet. Dr. Meldrum says it is a problem of rarity and geography. And he goes into a lot more detail in his book, Sasquatch Legend. It's Mark and Michelle back here. We love a mystery, though. That's I mean, it's, it's the American around in the world loves a mystery. Yeah, it's fun to sit around and, and talk about. All right, field thanks. Good report. Um.
2: Coming to you from the Paranormal Warehouse, Destination Mystery paints the story for paranormal content, abnormal adventures, and the fun behind the investigations. Each week, Mike and Melissa will bring a new adventure that includes going to some of the most remote places in the West. They will tell the story behind the investigation and share with you the evidence they discover. This is not your regular paranormal show. These episodes will bring new content from locations that no one would think to investigate or explore. We will not only tell the spooky story, we will go to the location where the spooky story originated. Fasten your seatbelts as we take you on an adventure that will make you question what's normal and what's paranormal.
0: Donald Jeffrey Meldrum was born on May 24, 1958. He is a full professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. Additionally, he is agent professor of occupational and physical therapy and affiliate curator of vertebrae paleontology at the Idaho Museum of Natural History and anatomical sciences with a focus in biological anthropology at State University of New York at Stony Brook. Dr. Meldrum kept the position of postdoctoral visiting assistant professor at Duke University Medical Center between 1989 to 1991. Meldrum was employed at Northwestern University's Department of Cell, Molecular, and Structural Biology for a short period in '93, prior to joining the faculty of Idaho State University where he presently teaches. Jeff Meldrum has written and published a number of academic papers including Vertebrate Evolutionary Morphology, The emergence of bipedal locomotion in modern humans and sasquatch and is a co-editor of a series of books on paleontology meldrum also co-edited from biped to strider the emergence of modern human walking with charles e hilton meldrum has drawn media attention as a result of his involvement with bigfoot an alignment he retains in spite of ostracism coming from his fellow anthropologists and university colleagues Dr. Meldrum has followed the Bigfoot lore since he was a young boy. His curiosity about Bigfoot came about when he was 11 and witnessed the famous clip, Robert Patterson and Bob Gimlin's Patty footage. According to Jeff, the footprint molds of other individuals he has analyzed together with with still unknown hairs, audio recordings of bizarre unknown calls, and a number of witness testimonies, all adequate to legitimate evidence that justifies further study. The evidence that exists fully justifies the investigation in the pursuit of this question. To Meldrum's critics, which include university peers along with scientists within his own field, that same collection does not amount to legitimate evidence, and Meldrum's study of it is actually pseudoscientific. Beginning throughout late 1990s, Jeff has regularly made appearances in Bigfoot documentaries speaking about his observations on Bigfoot and Yeti along with revealing his research concerning foot anatomy and locomotion. He has given lectures at numerous Sasquatch seminars, spreading his knowledge of bipedal foot morphology relating to supposed Sasquatch casts. Meldrum is generally regarded as a primary expert on Bigfoot footprints, along with the derived morphology and functional anatomy belonging to the foot. His documentary films appearances include 1998's The World's Greatest Hoax, Secrets Finally Revealed. 2003's Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. 2004's Mysterious Encounters. 2004's Unexplained Mysteries. 2005's Is It Real? 2007's Best Evidence. 2007 through 2008's Destination Truth. 2008's Cryptid Hunt. 2007-2010's Monster Quest. 2010's American Paranormal. 2011's Expedition Week. 2011's Bigfoot, The Definitive Guide. 2012's Ancient Aliens. 2012's Unsealed, Conspiracy Files. 2013's America's Book of Secrets. 2013's Joe Rogan, Questions Everything. 2013's American Sasquatch Hunters, Bigfoot in America, 2014's Bigfoot, The Evidence Files, 2016's Epic Mysteries, Bigfoot, and 2017's Discovering Bigfoot, and some films and documentaries he has done as of recently. His research encompasses questions of vertebrae evolutionary morphology, generally, but more particularly, primate locomotor adaptations, and especially the emergence of modern human bipedalism. His co-edited volume, From Biped to Strider, The Emergence of Modern Human Walking, Running and Resource Transport, proposes a more recent innovation of modern stride gait than previously assumed. His interest in the footprints attributed to Sasquatch, was peaked when he examined a set of 15-inch tracks in Washington State in 1996. Now his lab houses well over 300 footprint casts attributed to this mystery primate. He conducts collaborative laboratory and field research throughout North America and the world and has spoken about his findings in numerous popular and professional publications. He is the author of Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, which explores his and other scientists' evaluation of the contemporary evidence and also affords deference to tribal people's traditional knowledge of this subject. He has also published two field guides, one focusing on Sasquatch, the second casting the net more broadly to consider the potential of relic hominids around the world. He is editor-in-chief at the scholarly referred journal, The Relic Hominid Inquiry. Some of his published works include Evaluation of Alleged Sasquatch Footprints and Their Inferred Functional Morphology, that was written in 1999. Midfoot Flexibility, Fossil Footprints, and Sasquatch Steps, New Perspectives on the Evolution of bipedalism, written in 2004. Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, written in 2006. Ichnotaxonomy of Giant Hominid Tracks in North America was written in 2007. Is so much to learn from Dr. Jeff Melkner. His expertise, knowledge in the field of hominid foot morphology, and his countless years of study have lent credibility to the claim of the unknown species, but for the most part, has done nothing but create armchair skeptics and ostracize him from his colleagues. If hard scientific back data showing an extremely high-level of possibility to the existence of the species can be ignored so easily, why aren't all of the other pieces of evidence that have been introduced and presented accounted for as well? There has been DNA evidence that was found to be part human and part inconclusive, meaning there was nothing to match in the database of known animals on Earth, There has been eDNA, the collection of environmental DNA, such as hair follicles embedded in grass, or skin cell collection from suspected nest sites, scientifically broken down and examined audio recordings that were found to be outside of not only the human vocal range, but that of every known animal sound in our database. And these are just a couple. There have been countless entries of evidence, yet most, if not all, are scoffed at. A jury can fix on less. So what's different here? It's up to us to keep collecting and presenting scientifically appropriate data. And then, and only then, will the possibility of the existence of the species be taken seriously. The news clip from the beginning of the episode can be found on YouTube channel Saul Train, S-A-U-L-T-R-A-I-N. And it is under the video title, Sasquatch, Dr. Jeff Mildrum's TV news coverage. The lecture you are about to hear is from the YouTube channel, Pacific Northwest Sasquatch Research Group, under the video title, Professor Dr. Jeff Meldrum. In this lecture, Dr. Jeff Meldrum goes over the evidence found to support the theory that the Patterson-Gimlin film was in fact authentic. It is from 2017 and coincides on the 50th anniversary in which the film was shot. So buckle up and get ready for the ride hey there guys this next section you're about to listen to is uh, professor jeff meldrum in 2017 at squatch fest in kelso longview washington uh it is his insight about the Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin Bluff Creek film and its historical 50-year mark. So enjoy. Let's
2: give a big round, warm applause for Dr. Jeff Martin.
3: Thanks very much, and and uh, uh, it's been a great day. All of you, I'm, I'm sorry if at any time I didn't sound absolutely uh, or appear absolutely rapt and interested in your story. Uh, sometimes there are just so many of you around the table that it's hard to give you the attention that I really like to. Uh, so, uh, if we get a chance later on this evening, we'll be here till, till later. Uh, we'd love to hear more details about some of your experiences. But, you know, for the last uh, year, I've been sort of drumming, uh, beating out of a drumsy on one particular theme, and that was the, the notion of the relic hominoids. And, and I was uh, encouraging, challenging Bigfoot enthusiasts to utilize that word, get comfortable with this it, so word, roll up your tongue. Um, and I won't spend the time, because I've got a lot of things I want to cover, and, uh, and, and very little time to squeeze what I, what I can in to go through what that means. But I just wanted to say, for those of you that have been using that term, and I see it more and more, uh, I, uh, I commend you, uh, because I really think that that, uh, that little thing will be a, a, a powerful lever in um, nudging this stone sort of a, of a concept into into place within the context of uh, the scientific community. And that's what I'm about. Now I realize there are some of you in the audience, and I've, and I've visited with some of you who have very different perceptions of experiences than I might uh, uh, have or take uh, away from those experiences but uh, and that's fine uh, not everyone has the same goals but I hope you realize that that's where I'm coming from this act as a scientist as an anthropologist an anatomist addressing the question is there a biological species behind the legend of Sasquatch and other potential relic hominoids like the Russian Almas the Oregman deck the uh, Ibu Gogo, uh, the uh, Almasti of, of Siberia, and so forth. This year, however, we are entering into the 50th anniversary year of the Patterson-Gimlin film, and uh, and that's pretty amazing. Here we are 50 years down the, the road, and uh, while there still is a lot of bait, debate and certainly no consensus of opinion, uh, this film has survived repeated Assaults on its credibility. Uh, you know, at one time in, in my involvement, I sort of shied back from placing too much emphasis on this one particular thing. You know, I didn't want there to be the perception that all our eggs were in this basket, and if the skeptics could, could you know, crack those eggs, then the whole thing would, would fall by the wayside. But the more I became familiar with uh, the principles involved, with, with Bob Gimlin, foremost. And um, the more I I investigated the skeptical arguments, the more I learned about the anatomy and uh, the uh, uh, locomotion that was evident in that film subject. Um, Working with people like Bill Munns, for example, who uh, brings remarkable skills to bear as he has studied the film from his perspective as a Hollywood, not only as a Hollywood makeup artist and costume designer and fabricator, but also as a a great uh, student of cinematography, of the uh, uh, logistical and practical aspects of cinematography, and and photogrammetry, et cetera, et cetera. Many skills brought to bear on this piece of evidence that I that I really see it it is a uh, integral part, and and it stands on its own uh, as uh, as data. So that is the emphasis. As as we will will see, I guarantee you, media attention. Uh, increase over the passing months as we approach the actual anniversary date in October. I hope that by emphasizing those things that are so, those insights that are so revealing about the credibility of this piece of footage, that the media will focus on that rather than these ridiculous claims by individuals like Philip Morris and Bob Hieronymus and, and uh, Long and others. So, 50 years of patterson Gilman film so the film holds a special place for me because when I was a youngster, you know, about so tall, uh, age eleven-ish, uh, fifth grade in Spokane, Washington, the kids at school were all excited about this movie that was being shown downtown about Bigfoot. Like, Bigfoot, what's Bigfoot? And when they explained it to me, I mean, I was fascinated with all things prehistoric, the mysterious dinosaurs, cavemen—you know, you name it and so I ran home after school and I opened up the paper and sure enough right there was this advertisement and there it is, someone actually uh, sent me a copy of that and clipped me years later and uh, it was advertised there uh, taking place at the Spokane Coliseum so I I talked my dad into taking me and my brother, my younger brother down and we were there on the third row uh, watching on this big screen as uh, Roger Patterson introduced his documentary showcasing this 60-second clip. And I tell you, to see that thing walk across that screen larger than mine from right there uh, in those uh, close-up uh, rows, third row, uh, it then obviously a lasting impression that i come back full circle. When I left, they handed out a sample newsletter from the Northwest Research Association, which was Roger Patterson's organization, and he had a, a periodic newsletter that went out. But this invited you and gave instruction on how to become a member of the Northwest Research Associates. Does anyone here ever remember that or join that association? This is the strangest thing. I must have been the only member. <laughs> but I've got the letters, so I've got the newsletters to prove it with my name and home address. But part of membership was you got a copy of uh,
2: this cast right
3: there. And not this one, but the, the make to that was a, a very poor replica, as it turned out. A very disappointing epoxy replica, the one of, of the 17-inch one was much better. Um, and you got a 11 by 14 black and white print from the film, and a five by seven color print, which are some of the best quality prints I've ever seen. And in all the times I've talked about this, we brought it up, and I don't mention every single time, not one other person in the audience has ever acknowledged that they were a member and had these same prints. It was really, really strange. And of course, then I eventually ordered his book. Fascinating collection of newspaper clippings and you know, a little bit of narration and annotation by Roger himself about some of his travels down there. And it was really, really fascinating. Now, what's interesting is, <clears throat> And there it, there there was give you a little impression of what it was like. But imagine that standing about uh, because they they showed it in close up and slow motion, about eight feet tall, walking across the screen. I mean, it, it, it's it's impressive. It's just uh, it's just amazing. Well, and in addition to to this presentation, <laughs> recently, if you're if you're not aware, I I edit an online scholarly journal, a referee journal called the Relic Hominoid Inquiry www.isu.edu slash RHI. And the most recent posting was a, a brief communication by Christopher Murphy from Canada, who has written a number of excellent books. He's uh, he's done a great job. Meet the Sasquatch and Know the Sasquatch are also uh, essential uh, required readings that replete with illustrations, bring you up to speed on the historical aspects of the phenomenon and many of the personalities involved. But Chris just recently had um, had brought to my attention a piece that he had edited, which included some frames of the film that um, uh, were apparently uh, made from the original film very early on, but had languished in a safe for which the combination was forgotten. And only recently, back in the, in the Presumably, the, the, the uh, uh, prints were made sometime in the in the 80s, uh, and then uh, they weren't recovered until the 90s or something like that. Got, I'm starting to foggy on the dates here now of so. a sudden. But, nevertheless, uh, so these prints came out, and I'm almost certain that that five by seven content, or a uh, uh, projection print of the famous 352's, right,
2: great
3: 352's. Yeah, I like this. Aging sucks, you know. It <laughs> after how many hours have I been in there? Um, anyway, uh, I'm sure that that frame that I purchased was was uh, 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 originally made along with this set. So I want to show you these. They're also online; you can download and look at them. But I mean, the clarity of these full frame. These are full frame, so it shows you that you know, he was pretty darn close there at the commencement that of uh, that building footage. That high stepping gate, uh, the uh, uh, smooth surface reflecting the sunlight there on the uh, sole of the foot and overexposing it, making it look a little bigger than it truly was. But I mean, just the anatomy said that there's another great shot. I mean, these are just stunning to, to look at. You know, that's obviously a man in the first two, right? <laughs> And that back. Now, the problem was that in spite of the quality of that footage, which is uh, largely underappreciated by most today because most individuals' perception is based on a licensed VHS broadcast copy that, that Mrs. Patterson makes available that is, is very degraded, poor quality, and so you see you know, just it adds to the mystique, maybe, but it leads to comments by otherwise, you know, fairly intelligent individuals like David Dayland say that the quality is so poor that you just cannot see any facial detail, let alone any other anatomical features, well, that's just absolutely. I mean, obviously, he was working from a very poor quality of coffee. But in 1967, the thing that, 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 that is important to stress, and and it was part of the, you know, my Theme in the previous year was that the scientific paradigm that prevailed in anthropology in 1967 didn't allow for what was on that film. There was just no way to accommodate. At that time, anthropological perspectives were, were largely dominated by what was called the single species hypothesis. Now, in short, this simply meant it was barred, the idea was borrowed from ecology, where it was. Noted that no two species can occupy the same niche uh, at the same time. One will be better at it than the other and drive the one to extinction or, or cause it to adapt differently, evolve differently. The hominid niche was very unique, you know, bipedalism, braininess, and above all, culture. So that uniqueness meant that there could be only one species in it. And so human evolution was seen. As this process of one species supplanting the preceding being supplanted subsequently by another, but there was only one. There could be only one. With that idea, the notion that there could have been right now, we're the one, right? So there can't be another bipedal hominid walking around, let alone in Northern California. And so they're just, you know, here, here's Roger. You could say figuratively with his Patterson in the film in the. Confronting the anthropological community, and there's just no place to put this puzzle piece in. There's no accommodation for it. All right. What's really interesting, though, and, and it bespeaks the fact that there was no accommodation because the assumptions or the knowledge was insufficient. Some of the, the ways in which the Patterson Gidlin film actually anticipate our current anthropological understanding. For example, the mosaic of small brain and bipedalism. One of the quotes you, you hear when you look at some of the expert opinions of the patterson gimlin field is, paraphrasing, look at that. It makes no sense. From the waist down, it looks like a hairy human. From the waist up, it looks like a gorilla. It's inconceivable that you'd ever have that combination of traits in nature. That was 1967. In the mid-70s, what was discovered? Remember Lucy, the famous hominid. And the comments that were made about Lucy, wow, look at her. From the waist down, she looks like a little hairy human. From the waist up, she looks like a chimpanzee. But wait a minute. Ten years before, it was inconceivable that such a combination of features could be existing in nature. So, anticipating by almost a decade that notion, that mosaicism of bipedalism preceding increased brain size. The retention of the midfoot flexibility with a non-divergent hallways. All right, it was thought that you know, couldn't have the reason the big toe was in line with the toes was so there could be a longitudinal arch. Well, that's now shown to be wrong. It's, it's finally, after me pounding on this drum for ten years, been pretty much acknowledged now. This the weight of the published literature certainly backs me up that the latest only tracks the first hominid bipeds were walking on flat, flexible feet that had a mid tarsal break, just like we see in sasquatch. So that combination of traits has been confirmed. This deep jaws with a very flat face. Okay, we didn't have any hominids that didn't have a projecting chimpanzee or gorilla-like lower face. Uh, but eventually they were discovered, and I'll show some examples of the remarkable similarity of some of these hominids to what we see on the Patterson Dixon. And non-projecting canines, the absence of tools, there was this this uh, strange notion of a, of a uh, uh, inviolable combination or correlation between reduced canine size and tool use. Canines got smaller because you had you had a stone knife, you didn't need canines to defend your mate or to win a mate or to you know, fight males and so forth. And, and it was so conflated that even when, uh, you know, back uh, in the 70s when these uh, ramapithecines were discovered that had short canines. They had to be hominid ancestors, and from from little fragments of the mandible or from the maxilla with short canines, it was inferred that they must have been making tools. So, if they were making tools, they must have been standing on their hind legs, and so you know, it just it was this chain of logic, but it was on a flawed premise. So uh, that's now been swept away. And so one of the things that seems to be quite evident in, uh, in sightings of Sasquatch is the lack of a projecting canine. A characteristic that Gigantopithecus also shares with uh, apparently the Sasquatch. Alright, so our concept of what these hominids might have looked like now has converged after the fact with what is portrayed on the Patterson-Inland film in a remarkable way. So here's a depiction of uh, some robust Australopithecines in East Africa. You know, some uh, well, it's quite interesting. One, the, the most recent the date has gotten younger and younger. The most recent associated postcranial and cranial remains of uh, the Australopithecus boisei in East Africa have a date of 1.3 million years. That's quite a bit younger. That's about 200,000 years younger than the previous known known date for cranial remains of that specimen. All right, so. Let's talk more about the the Patterson-Gimlin film. One of the things that has been, uh, roles in in which it has played a significant part is the characterization of the Sasquatch feet. And based on the type specimens, and I selected four of the type specimens, the right and left casts of uh, the the Patterson-Gimlin film site, cast by Roger, um, that constitutes the type specimen with the, the holotype including the referred material that was cast by Bob Titmus 10 days later, where he cast 10 tracks in succession. So adding to that, with the benefit that we have, an image of the track maker. On that basis, using borrowing the system of taxonomy, which is a classification system that's based on traces, tracks and traces of, of usually fossil animals, but an exception, and a willing exception, was, was granted by, by the ichnological. Uh, since we don't know the track maker, it's not <coughs> recognized anyway, I should say, it's not recognized. Uh, I presented at the uh, uh, New Mexico Museum of Natural History where a symposium was held on Cenozoic tracks and traces and proposed this new nomen, new, new uh, uh, taxonomic term, anthropoides of which simply translates as the North American Eighth Book. 2007, and then um, that manuscript went out for review. was fables and reviewed by five reviewers and uh, was published. So there is a handle on the feet, but more important than anything, than even a recognition of a name, you know, what's in a name, it's the diagnosis. It codified a diagnosis of the distinguishing characteristics that, that uh, set apart the Sasquatch tracks from, from other prominent tracks and humans. So there's the referred specimens, including this really remarkable one that uh, those who've been off the table have seen that shows this, re- this remarkable pressure, which is evident to some degree in some of these others, but it's just very dramatic, uh, dramatically portrayed and preserved in this example. Here's the 3D scan of that and it shows this pressure. Now, you've got to remember, a footprint is not, a, it's not like a static mold of a foot. It's not a snapshot. Uh, but it's, it's a composite uh, of a period of time through which the foot fall has occurred, through which the step has occurred. And so you've got to think of that as a dynamic feature, a secondary feature. Not something you would see apparent on the foot itself, other than in the quality of that mid-tarsal break. And by break, we mean flexion. We just mean an axis of flexion, not a damage or an injury. Okay, I made that very clear. Well, people keep giving that mistake. So there's that, that bridge. Now, my interpretation of that is, is this. Here's the striking contrast between the function of the two. The human foot is characterized by a longitudinal arch, a very recent innovation. So recent, in fact, that some human feet actually still behave like this, as was pointed out by an individual who <clears throat> tried to, on that basis, suggest that my interpretation of the early hominid tracks to show the pressure ridges wasn't that. Distinct. wasn't that significant, because even modern people show it on occasion. Well, no, wait, let's turn that back around, the argument should be viewed. Even modern people show it, which shows how recently the arch has evolved, and it's still volatile amongst human populations. So there's still are a lot of people who have asymptomatic flat feet, even hypermobile feet, where there's a greater degree of flexibility, and where they'll show some differential pressure Underneath bones in the middle. but what happens here when the human heel comes up? You know, due to the action of the ankle flexors the calf muscles, the whole foot acts as a lever. And we've evolved as a result. of you know, very uh, derived Achilles tendon that acts as the elastic storage mechanism right? is driven by this this, this uh, arch, especially when we run up on the balls of our feet. Okay, sasquatch on the other end. When the heel comes up, the foot flexes here. Weight's now over the forefoot. Not just the ball, but foot. If the substrate is plastic enough, if, if there's the proper impulse, sometimes there will be pressure released through the yielding of that substrate back into the heel set. Or just the ridge pushed up. Sometimes you'll get a whole disc that's translated back from that point. But you can always tell the point where it, that pressure commences. It looks very different than such a disc in a human foot. Uh, and, and I'm very confident that this interpretation. Why? Because we can watch it take place right here in the film. Now, it's a little easier to see with stop action here with a single frame. So here, the heel's coming up. Here, the heel segment is almost vertical. If that foot was arched, if it was a rigid prosthetic on a costume, you know, one of Wallace's hardwood feet, then the rest of the foot would be sticking eight inches into the ground. This not it's not, it's just that you, the foot is flexed, the pressure's coming off the forefoot now, but by this time, because of the forward lean, the five degree forward lean, and the compliant gait, the weight's already pretty much over this foot. So there's very little impulse through the toes. The toes are just there for traction for, to prevent slippage back, pretty much. The prehensile rather than propulsive in, in this, in this situation on the substrate. And one other thing, notice right here, see the toes pointing skyward at the beginning of that sequence? And notice how they flex. Now, the toes look really short here, don't they? But they're not actually. If you all look at your palm, and you bend your fingers, you see the crease in your palm, which corresponds to the position of the knuckle. So you have about, you know, a half inch to three-quarter inch of webbing between your fingers. When you flex, a flexion crease shows up there at that point of flexion. Well, if you look carefully, you can see that little shadow right there. That's a flexion crease. And it's more pronounced in some individuals, or some of the northern California individuals, particularly that had a very extensive soul pad going out and had a very pronounced crease across. If you go home and look at your birth certificate, if you have a neat footprint from when you were baby or your kids, you'll notice we're all born with a flexion crease right across the ball of our field. That only fills in once you start walking bare feet and that sole path develops and the, the fascia underneath the ball of the foot grows and develops. Uh, sometimes it persists. One of my voices has hyper feet and, and still has a crease right across there. Okay, but the point is that marks the joint. So all that is toe. They're back from there. Not just these little teeny, stubby things see, out here. It's quite long. In fact, look, it's exactly like you see right there. Long toes, angling, upward the sky as they should at that point of the step cycle. Alright, there you see actually that. I mean that's amazing. That's not a prosthetic. That's not a cheap. When we did a National Geographic special we the documentary uh, the documentary crew rented a very expensive cost. like a thousand dollars a day. It's appeared in a couple of commercials. But the feet were ridiculous. They were a pair of loafers that we had at a price store It just had Fur cloth glued onto them with these floppy toes, it was like Ronald McDonald. No, I mean, if you want it, you know, it wouldn't flip and point upward and go downward into, and press into the soil at times like these feet are doing. It. Very animated. But okay, got it very well. Okay, now um, at one time, you know, when Roger made his cast, the the, the sand. On that Bluff Creek sandbar it was a particular type of sand. It wasn't uh, granitic sand, which makes little rounded sand granules. Instead, it was a, it was a highly eroded slate. Uh, and as such, the grains were very angular and held their shape really well, such as if they were already wet because of the periodic rains that they were experiencing. Um, and so, those footprints were very, very clear, remarkably clear. I mean, this is amazing the replicas I have don't do justice to this. You can see the toe stems, you can see the articulation, you know, the angle of articulation, you can see the outline, you know, there, you can just see the hint of the crease there. You can see the bold right there that indicates the uh, pressed down tuberosity of the navicular, which in an arch would be top, up off the ground. Have you ever seen someone who has flat feet or kind of pronated feet? Uh, watch, you can see their wet footprint on the, Pavement outside a swimming pool, you'll see that inner bulge which represents that same bone. So, anyway, the landmarks to identify some of the key points, and especially this, which would determine the position of the transverse parcel joint and the position of that pressure ridge, are evident. Now, I, I created this just independently from this imprint, just by a uh, view of considering this one, but I was gratified when I superimposed it on did this cast, lo and behold, sure enough, the trans tarsal joint falls right where it should be, uh, uh, there at the, uh, the mid-tarousal pressure, or did I say that right again, trans tarsal joint, mid tarsal So that was a good confirmation. Okay, so enough about footprints. Let's talk about the scale, and I know why. you have been curious about how this goes. And unfortunately, no, I don't have this in my lab, The production companies, since they, they uh, fronted the money... For the 3D printing and the materials, they apparently have a museum of curiosities in their home office back in Minnesota, where they uh, uh, have uh, various artifacts from their various productions. And uh, our skeleton uh, occupies a central position in that museum. But it's, it's fine. I, I really wouldn't have much room to put it in my lap as it is. But, uh, so what was this what was the story behind this well they wanted to incorporate 3d printing technology just for the sake of using some modern technologies for portraying this so they said what could we do and i said well you know you could 3d print a replica footprint cast but that's not that interesting really." i said that it would be interesting to do a skull so, you know grover kranz has done this remarkable reconstruction but there's another gentleman now i've forgotten his name didn't put it in here who uh, Done through the literature, found an obscure paper describing a set of gigantic teeth. And he was stunned when he saw the dimensions because the dimensions were fully 30% bigger than the teeth in the jaw that Grover used to make his reconstruction. 30% bigger. So he created a skull that was 30% bigger than Grover's skull. Well, that might have been, there might not be a one to one correlation skull size to. Two But nevertheless, it was an interesting uh, exercise. Sort of I said, you could do that. And they go, no, no, we want to do an entire skeleton. I said, an entire? You mean, how about half a skeleton and just stand it up next to a mirror?
2: <laughs> and they said, no, no, we want
3: to do a whole skeleton. We want to do it ten feet tall. And I said, ten feet tall is a little much. I said, it's a little excessive. Why don't you go with eight and a half? That's probably a little more realistic. And that will still be I be, 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 be impressive. So I said, okay. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, now how are we going to do this? Because we can we can start from scratch, which is gonna be a lot of work if given their time frame, which is not good. I thought, well, let's start with an existing skeleton. Let's take a pre-modern human with a robust skeleton, and then once we scan that, we can modify it in the computer. We can stretch it, elongate it, do all sorts of things to it, enlarge it. And so, as you may know, recently some investigators, some anthropologists had made a composite Neanderthal skeleton using, even even though we have a very good skeletal record of Neanderthals because they have the habit of occupying caves, and often were interred in caves, whether intentionally or because of cave-ins or just to get the garbage out of, out of the way. Not quite clear. But nevertheless, they, they made a composite out of by piecing together parts of several different skeletons and came up with a Neanderthal skeleton. So the skeleton well, but, and so it was very good. The bone clones had licensed the rights to reproduction of their moth. And so we contacted bone clones and got their permission to scan and modify it, but only for the purposes of this documentary. You know, obviously they want to keep the lid on this. So I thought, okay, so we'll have our robust homicid skeleton. How do we scale it? How do we proportion it? Because, you know, the antipodes have fairly short limbs for their body size. They just have very wide pelvis. They had other distinctions in the, in the skeletal anatomy, but I thought, well, let's take a known rather than trying to just guess. You know, taking things like anecdotal descriptions of well, its knees hung, its arms hung past its knees. Let's go with Patty. So we took uh, Patty, and then some work had been done. Roger, uh, sorry, uh, John Green, in his book uh, on the Track the sasquatch, had uh, done some very careful measurements. Based on a scale established by the 14 and a half a footprint, and that's probably an under the estimate, 14 and a half to 15, 15 and a half could be as much as, um, because foot size, to footprint size can vary a little bit. But nevertheless, we had, we had the proportions pretty worked out. Uh, we know that, that Patty, we know their, the stature, here's a footnote about the stature, because there continues to be some controversy about how big Patty was. This is the diagram that uh, Nassi, uh, Jeff whitman at Nassi had produced using a uh, composite photo taken of Al Hodgson's son, who's six feet tall, standing here, uh, and then by superimposing the structures in the background. There, there's some potential, you know, caveats in here. You've got to be really careful doing this. was a forensic uh, photo analyst, and so uh, it's fairly reliable if you look at it close up. So there's six feet. So. This thing was in excess of um, seven feet tall. And if you go to the RHI and look at Murphy's paper, he provides some other additional insights about the proportion. they're really quite interesting. I'll let you read that because I don't have time. But uh, another reconstruction had been undertaken by Ruben Steindorf for Sasquatch Legendary Science, the documentary. And so here was his, his reconstruction, but I substituted a different head. I didn't like the head that he came up with. And so uh, this is a, an enlargement or a, a scaled version, of uh, Paranthropus, or Australopithecus boisei, the East African robust form of, of early hominid. All right, so here's the Neanderthal skeleton. There beside the, um, uh, the uh, Rubenstein steindor and the robust Australopithecus skull. And you can see these are my notes, where I was working out the proportions and figuring out what the appropriate uh, uh, values would be for them to stretch, or shrink, or widen. You know, not only did they have to change the limb proportions, but they had to stretch the torso because the Sasquatch has enormously broad shoulders and a thick torso, broad pelvis. All right, there there is the skeleton over John Green's tracing from their composites of the composite tracing, from the, bills of the frames of the film, excuse me. And then this is credited to uh, R.C. Spears, which is all uh showing kind of a fleshed out anatomy. So the idea was the documentary was going to show this whole process. They didn't really follow through with some of the CGI, like i hope. At one point, the technicians sent me this illustration, because they were working on they're stretching everything, and I immediately go back and I said, guys, we said eight and a half feet, not ten feet, remember? And they go, this is eight and a half feet, because the Neanderthal is only five foot four, short and And so you can see, I mean, already, eight and a half feet, can you imagine if it was ten feet tall? I mean, this was just stunning. And so they wouldn't let me see it until it was all assembled. So they were going to re-articulate it and have it all mounted like this, and then they wanted... You know, to fill my reaction, and, and I tell you, it was pretty amazing. Was walk in and you see that thing. It's just hard to picture. And again, eight and a half feet, which is, you know, I, I think a, a lot of you would be familiar with reports or even personal experiences where you might have estimated the height that was in excess. Uh, but even that size. Now, the purpose was certainly they were after the ooh ah factor. <laughs> So, so that was one factor. And unfortunately, that's much of the discussion that's going to follow fell by the wayside. You know, the discussion of how we came to this, and what our rationale, what our justifications were, it, it kind of uh, was reduced to the "ooh ah." but still it was pretty amazing to contemplate. We had some discussion, you know, how would an animal that big make a living? How can an animal that big be in your backyard here in the Pacific Northwest? Now, question, one question that had to be addressed was why, why eliminate the Neanderthal skull? Well, look at this. The average Homo sapiens, modern Homo sapiens cranium, average falls between 12, this isn't the complete range, but the average estimates range from about 1200 to 1500, depending upon the sample. For Neanderthals, 1300 to 1700 cc's. Q-10. Neanderthals were brainier as far as absolute volume than we are. Now, their, their mass was, they were a bit bulkier, heavier muscles and so forth, but they were shorter. Still, their brains were too big. By contrast, the uh, Australopithecus boisei had a brain that was just, you know, a few hundred centimeters, or less than a few uh, hundred centimeters or so, a couple hundred centimeters, a larger than a chimpanzee. And there were other aspects of the skull that were really amazing. If you scaled up the robust Australopithecus phase, this goes back to one of those anticipatory Facts, uh, factors here. If you scale up the robust, astral, face and line it up with paddy, and this is a blow up of that 5 by 7 print that I have. So you can see the quality. There are a lot of facial features. If you can't recognize you have no business being an anatomist or an anthropologist, in my opinion. But uh, starting from the crown of the head, right down to the receding chin, the flaring gonial of the jaw. Look at the depth of the jaws. This is Right here is where the lips are, presumably, according to all reconstructions. And then here's the base of the nose, the piriform aperture, and the nose may extend a little lower. So really, but this, remember, this shiny spot is just the glint off of the nose, the smooth skin of the hairless nose. It's not a hole in a mask, as people would point to. Uh, these flaring cheekbones. You can see the shadow too. Look at the depth of the masseter muscle, the cheek muscle there. Spanning between, and here it's broken off, but you know, this big flaring cheekbone that gave actually gave it a dished-out face look on the, on the extreme a robust ostriophentis. Uh, the top of the brow ridge here, is the arch brow, prominent out here, with the, you can see the angle of the head here with, with the head is caught. Now again, think about it. Uh, Well, let's go to the next one. Let's talk about some of the uh, adaptations of of the robust Australopithecines and what the implications might be for SASFARGE. So, here's the robust Australopithecus, Australopithecus boisei, which has non projecting canines. It has premolars that are huge, premolars that are bigger than our molars, and molars that are many times bigger than our molars. In an animal that only stood five and a half feet tall, that cranium came from an animal that was five and a half feet tall. And so they were chewing machines, they had thick enamel, much thicker than the enamel on our teeth. So they ate tough and hard foods, uh, probably nuts, you know, roots, fibrous material, <clears throat> it was part of that. Now, if we took that skull and scaled it up to the size that we made it for our 8.5 foot Sasquatch skeleton, this is what it would look like compared to a human. Now make that, you know, see that little yellow blob over there? Is actually a human molar. Now, to make it even more dramatic, here's a rough approximation of the surface area of just the post canine teeth on both sides compared with the same area on the human skull. Now, what does that say about the adaptation of a big I mean, it's a chewing machine, it's got this flat face for posterior loading. You know, instead of a projecting face and a high peak in the back, necessarily, with a high sagittal crest, for loading of the front teeth, whereas, like a gorilla, we do a lot of processing before it grinds up the food in the back, but high ridge teeth instead of the flat teeth. This thing has a flat face, so that the, most of the loading is on the anterior temporalis, which means it's not going to have a real high peak like anterior but it's uh, going to load the posterior teeth for, for grinding. Alright, now what's interesting, you can see the contrast the gorilla face and the satellite face. Flat face. Flat face, non-projecting canine. Again, non-projecting so that those big grinding teeth can not only go like this, but can go like this. Now what would be the inspiration for a giant hairy ape in 1967? Bing Kong giant gorilla. And yet Roger, if he faked this, was still a Boris servant. If he demonstrated that, he could produce a costume that came anywhere here. You know, couldn't hold the handle to this. Um, he came up with something that was totally as yet unknown. Now here are the two muscles that drive the two principal, the largest muscles, the most superficial, the masseter and the temporalis. And of course the is here on the side of the cheek, coming from the cheekbone, that flaring zygomatic we talked about, and the arch down to the corner of the, of the jaw. That gonial angle I talked about is where the jaw actually flares outward to provide more leverage and more surface area for that muscle with a very deep, uh, thick uh, 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 situation there, uh, shape there. Now over here and this is the temporalis. So it's very small on us, and there's plenty of uh, neurocranium for it to attach to. So, uh, so no, nec- no reason to throw up a, a bony crest. Here's a chimp, an early australopithecine, and then the more derived robust form. Look at the size of that. You know, that reminds you of the shadow on the front of uh, uh, the Paddy's uh, portrait there, and then the expansive temporalis with a sagittal crest, but the crest is actually higher towards the middle and forward on the skull rather than in the back like it is in a gorilla. If you go back to this one, see the gorilla? It's like a fin, like I'm a creature from the Black Lagoon, you know? Uh, but it's big and high back here with a, a large nuclear crest that that muscle can also attach to opposite the trapezius muscle coming down here. Okay, enough on that. Now, what's interesting, anticipate, anticipate. 1967, remember, and yet, Look at the, the first skull that was discovered was in 1959. Now, there's a huge lag time between the announcement of the discovery and the actual publication and description. The first publication describing this skull and associated jaws in detail was in 1967. Interesting that the, the year, you know, know, I'm sure Roger Patterson was not reading the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. More time or nature. I guarantee you that. <laughs> I don't even do that regularly a regular basis anymore. Um, here we have the first full-blown analysis published as a monograph on the biomechanics of that phase. And yet what we see in pattern anticipates perfectly, not only perfectly in, in, the, in the shape and proportions, but the association of the kinds of dietary habits that you would expect in a large omnivorous hominoid in a temperate forest. Okay, I'll take it up here. I can lose it Alright, <laughs> to All right. so another thing, and here were some other insights we gained from this exercise. Uh, you know, The position of the foramen magnum in humans is tucked well up underneath the brain. With the reduction of our face and enlargement of our brain and the position of the, of the spine beneath the skull, you know, as many of you, have, some of you have demonstrated here, it's possible to balance your head without very without any muscle effort, even with your eyes closed. And your breathing becoming slower and heavier. <laughs> I can point the finger. I, I finally have just admitted, you know. My name is Jeff Melman, and I'm a narcoleptic. <laughs> I sit down and I'm not doing anything. I follow whether it's at church, whether it's watching the news, whether it's talking to my wife, I think. Uh, so anyway. Um, whereas, if we look at the great apes, notice that their burning magnum is farther back. So, there you can see it. And that graph just had to show that. Now, look, look at this, though. Look how high up on the skull then, the ape trapezius is disposed, and on that large flat plane called the nuchal plane, where in the humans it's tucked down under. This is actually exaggerated. I mean, I don't think anybody in this room has traps that high up or that big. But they don't have to be because the face is so light and small. By comparison, it doesn't take much muscle effort to counterbalance the tendency to fall forward. But now look at this. Now, here was the, here was the thing. It was like seeing something for the first time. How many of you have heard, you know, in the descriptions, one of the things that uh, would to say, it didn't have a neck. It had no neck, it was right on the shoulder. Or, you know, Grover talked about how it has to turn its whole body because the head is down below the shoulders. Well, I'm not so sure about the head being below the shoulders. I think that, that analogy maybe stretched a little bit. But what struck me is when we re that's when they re and I examined it, look at that. What happened? It still has seven cervical vertebrae, just like the human does, but you put a skull that has a teeny bitty neurocranium and these
2: massively deep,
3: heavy jaws. The jaws simply cover up the neck. The jaw is almost resting on the clavicle there. You know? Now, if you look at the back, it has the robust australopithecine has a foramen magnum. That associated with this habit of walking upright is tucked underneath a little bit. And so the attachment of the trapezius is lower. It has a platter face, remember? But still a heavy jaw as a face, so it's going to have large muscles, definitely large muscles. And, these, and uh, but, you know, on the Sasquatch, The shoulders are really broad. They've actually mounted these way too close. Look at the distance between the vertebral edge of the the shoulder blade and the spine. They've got it way too close here. So those shoulders would have been out even a little bit further. Uh, But anyway, the red line then marks the boundary of the trapezius, like a big cape coming down out here to the edge of the scapular spine and then down the thoracic vertebrae spinous processes. All right, now think of that, now look at this What do you see? Look at that muscle. It's way up on, not way up as high as a gorilla, but it's about midway, uh, or a third And it flares out like a cape to those shoulders. So not only is the front of the neck covered up by the jaws, but the back of the neck is obscured by this flaring trapezius. And there's a human by comparison. Look at the depth of those too. there's some long spinous processes underneath those, that muscle and those cervical vertebrae. Which is what you would expect in a creature that tends to walk with about 5 degree forward, forward uh, lean. Alright, so there's padding. Now let's talk about the face real quickly, we've got a few more minutes. Here's another blow up, shows you really nicely. See now, as I said, most people look at that and they see right there, they see the mouth, right? Well, Owen Caddy looked at that and said, no, that's the shadow underneath a pursed lip. It's one, like that, Squeezing his lip. And that the mouth is actually right down here. The highlights of the mouth are there. Now, there have been lots of interpretations. You probably have your favorite
0: one up here somewhere. But some of them really missed the mark. Now, look at the little wimpy jaws on this thing.
3: <laughs> uh, I always liked that. I thought this was a great bus. One I'm pictured with standing beside it. Um, one from Russia. From Russia, with love. And there's Hieronymus's or uh, Philip Morris's attempt to reverse engineer one of his masks to look like Sasquatch. Now, here's an interesting one. One of the arguments has often been about the nose, and there's been all kinds of discussion about the significance of a, quote, hooded nose, that you can't swim without a hooded nose, for example. Well, If you Google chimpanzee or orangutan swimming, you're you're going to see some really interesting uh, YouTube videos. Google that, do that, I don't have time to show you. uh, There's a chimp who's learned to swim to the deep end of the pool, clear a regulator, and breathe from a scuba tank, and then swim back up. There's one chimp who doesn't have to get the water in his nose, but who does, right? How many humans? I mean, our wonderful hooded nose
2: doesn't prevent many people from needing nose plugs when they go swimming.
3: You know, so the, 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 some of these generalizations, but this was an image that was produced, I'm, I'm assuming, by the North, West, North American Wildlife Research Association, which was the follow-up to when Roger died, Ron Olson sort of took the reins and renamed the organization for what it was. This was Roger sitting at his, his uh, type right I'm sure, Probably down the coffee or mm-hmm. drugstore. Uh, but, it, it was published in a book that was copyrighted, uh, uh, in Elwood's book at least I know, 1975. So it was produced sometime before that. And you look at the close up and look how they drew the notes. Now it's interesting because Owen Caddy, uh, and Owen hasn't uh, been, had much of a presence of late, but uh, Owen was an investigator uh, out of the Seattle area, he spent a lot of time up on the Swan River environs, and he uh, was a really good. Methodical observer and uh, had uh, and had a very good artistic bent. He went through um, some of the really uh, enhanced, if you will, and I'll show you how uh, uh, images of the face and came up with this sort of <coughs> interpretation. And it was interesting. So you can kind of see how he was describing that puckered upper lip and the mouth down very low. In other words, emphasizing the distance between the nose and the and the mouth open. Suggesting those very deep jaws. But he interpreted the notes as much more acorn. It was interesting when, uh, when John Vindernagel uh, sort of uh, consulted with uh, Robert Bateman, famous wildlife artist, and came up with that, with that beautiful painting of a Sasquatch that uh, graced the article that John wrote for Beautiful BC, Beautiful British Columbia. He drew it with the more pungent shaped notes. And I asked him about this. I said, why did you do that? I mean, that seems a little more pungent than I would have done. But he says, well, that, he said, the majority of the witnesses that I've talked to have described the nose like that. So there's probably some variation. I mean, I could go, and I, this is I've always meant to, go through pictures of all kinds of uh, people from all around the world, all, all sorts of modern human people, and show the variation in nose shape, and, uh, and show the extremes from the most upturned, flared nostrils to the most downturned, you know, uh, Roman, Roman style, Roman nose, and, uh, and there may be some range variation on the All right, I'm not going to spend much time on the Hieronymous legs <coughs> and the Philip Morris, just to say, you know, if Philip Morris watched this on TV and said, "Oh, that's my costume," I think he wasn't wearing his glasses at the time, because <laughs> here's the costumes that he was referring to. And as I said, it took them months to reverse engineer. To stitch on some hairy breasts, still left the belly completely bare, hair, and come up with a new top, a new uh, face, obviously completely new face, and obviously completely new foot because this foot you can not see it because of the long hair cover hanging over it had an opposable big toe, um, and then they padded up Hieronymus and put him in, and of course ignoring the fact that Hieronymus is barely six foot, maybe a little bit over six foot, so scale to what Patty was. You know, it's the Bigfoot meets the furry Pillsbury Doble. <laughs> and even if he did fit the right uh, right stature, his proportions are wrong. So if we scaled Patty to his arm length, he would have to fit in a costume that was like this. On the other hand, if we scaled Patty to his leg length from knee to ankle, knee to heel, he would not fit in a costume like this. His eyes would be looking out of the chest rather than out of the head. Okay, now, to kind of wrap up, yep, perfect, all right. To wrap up, as I said, the film has survived assault after assault, and it seems that every time there's a renewed criticism, uh, there are new technologies at hand that allow us to look at the film in a different way. And this was one of those. Um, I don't remember the short defense that prompted it, but, but John Green wanted, he wanted to look at the film in as best possible way, in the best possible way, he commissioned Rick Knoll. Is Rick here today? Did you make it in? Yeah. yeah. So if I get this wrong, you tell me. But he commissioned Rick to um, digitize, digitally photograph the film. Rick put together an excellent microscopic apparatus for, for microphotography and uh, and photographed each film digitally to the highest resolution. The, the grain of the film would. To tolerate. Now, what's amazing now in the computer age, we can take that digitized data and knowing that when Roger filmed the creature, the subject, he used a camera that had a lens that was not corrected for chromatic aberration. I mean, anyone know what that means? <laughs> in a cheaper lens uh, that hasn't been corrected optically. The different wavelengths of colored light refract slightly offset from one, differentially, so that they don't all fall into focus on the same plane. So, when you, you know, in this case, there was no manual focus. I mean, it was an infinite focus because he was—that's that, the way the camera set up. You can point it and so take the shot, focused and it was a pretty good focus. But some of the colors were slightly out, and so in the in the computer, they could digitally split into their various channels, color channels as they're referred to in that that approach, that software. It was determined that the red channel was the crispest, was the sharpest, the blue and the yellow were a little bit fuzzy so they could be subtracted away. You lose a little color information but the clarity of the image is sharpened up. And then those individual frames uh, were made available to um, M.K. Davis who stabilized them and strung them together in a gif, which plays at about the proper film speed, which should be 16, 18 most frames per second, not 24 frames per second. Sometimes, you know, when they play it on TV, they do it at 24 and it looks like Keystone Cops. walking through really, really fast. When you see the proper film, I mean, you, you, you appreciate the pendulum, the inertial moment of those arms and those limbs, the massiveness comes through. But the clarity, you know, I put this up here. And I'll, I'll show this, for example, in my anatomy classes. And I'll have my students say, yeah, How much surface anatomy can you identify? You start at the head, you know, and you start working your way down. We've already done a little bit. You can see the attachment of the trapezius up high. So you can see the nuchal plane. You can see that they flare down to the, uh, uh, the spinous process of the, uh, or the spine of the scapula. You can see the scapula sliding under the skin as that arm swings, back and forth there. You can see the traps converge down, the erector spinae, these two big columns of muscle here, which are massive on this thing because it's always leaning forward. You know, we have a a lordosis that allows our spine to kind of rest a little bit We rely on the ligamentous uh, articulations uh, there. Um, You can see the gluteus. Now, whether there's fat or that's all muscle, it's not exactly clear. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's common in some, some human populations in the Southern it's common to pack the fat on there as a place to store it. Um, or that massive gluteus, you know, the woman, uh, uh, Jessica Rose, Dr. Jessica Rose at Stanford when we were doing the project, and she was watching this and she goes, those, those gluteals, you know, she could see, I can see them short, but why are they tense so much so all the time? Because we only use our gluteals really, our gluteus maximus, when you squat or stand up. And when you're walking, you hardly use them at all. Unless you're leaning forward, because they serve as retractors of the legs and the torso and the hips. So if you're leaning forward all the time with a flexed hip, your gluteals are going to be tense more than time. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Dodger.
0: I want your feedback what do you think about the audio quality how about the content of the lectures who would you like me to study next please let me know all these things you can leave us a voicemail on our voice messaging system or You can email us at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com and let us know your suggestions and feedback. Thank you, guys. Bigfoot and the citizen scientist. All the information you heard today about dr. Jeff Meldrum from myself came from Wikipedia's Jeff Meldrum biography and all and also Idaho State University's website at HTTP colon backslash backslash ISU.edu backslash biology backslash people backslash faculty so again thank you for listening to this episode if you liked the show and you want more of it let me know on science meets bigfoot at gmail.com or send us a voice message on your podcast app whichever you're listening to us on. there should be an option there So until next time, stay safe, love each other, love yourself.
2: And the lights are out, you stumble in the dark. You kept pushing on, but then you went too far. When your ship has sailed and all your dreams are lost, everything is wrong. You feel like it's your fault. Just remember, I will be there for you, baby. Remember, there's nothing out there to get you. Don't forget it. When life feels normal, just call Just call